Welcome to the Spark Youth Podcast. Spark is the youth ministry of the Enfield and Strathfield Anglican Church. Our mission is to gather to hear God's word, to grow in Christ's likeness, and to go in prayerful proclamation. To find out more about us, you can go to our website at fields.org.au forward slash spark, or you can find us on our Instagram page at instagram.com forward slash youth underscore of underscore spark. Resilience has really come to the fore the last few months in terms of what we've been going through with COVID-19. So um, the rug's been pulled out from under our feet. How resilient we are determines how we're going to cope, our response, the direction we go in the future and the, the outcome of where that path will take us. So, you know, this situation has happened now. Um, there is nothing to stop other situations like this happening in our children's lifetime. So if we can get in there and build some good resilience skills now, we're setting them up so that they are rock solid. Um, if you know worldwide things like this or nationwide things like this do happen in the future, as well as down to the micro level, if just the small ups and downs of life occur for them. So uh, what do we think of when we think of resilience? anyway do we think of an inner strength do we think of kind of a mental flexibility in the face of a challenging time do we think of um, that kind of resourcefulness and problem solving or do we just think of tenacity and a persistence to keep going when things are really tough so we've all heard stories of resilience we've heard about people who actually flourish and do really well while others crumble Here's a bit of a screenshot from a movie called Unbroken, which some of you may have seen. It's an American war film um, and it's about the prisoner of war camps in World War II, where the soldiers were taken captive by Japanese um, soldiers. And it just, you know, tells how um, some of them could stay more mentally tough than others um, and what they did to survive and, and keep mentally fit and to, um, yeah, not let the situation crumble. So yes, we hear these stories, but what about a definition of resilience? So here are some um, definition of the concept of resilience is actually quite new. So up until about 10 years ago, psychologists and researchers spent a lot of time and money looking at what makes mentally sick people get back to a point of just kind of functioning. Now, 10 years ago, psychologists thought, wow, why don't we look at how can we go from just functioning to flourishing in life? So they started to look at what really makes for the good life, the fulfilled life. Um, that's when positive psychology research started coming to the fore and the idea of positive psychology started coming in and resilience very much sits within that framework. So, so yes, these definitions, um, researchers starting to look at it are quite new. If you look up the Oxford Dictionary, you'll see the capacity to recover quickly from difficulties or a toughness. So when something knocks you down, how do you recover to where you were previously? Now, the concept of falling up is an interesting one by Dr. Greg Steinberg. He's an American doctor who's done a number of TED Talks, and he talks about um, how can we fall up when a challenge strikes rather than fall down. He says that some individuals have this kind of knack of being able to almost turn tragedy into transcendence and find their authentic self their true meaning and purpose from, from a challenge. And he gives the example of Michelangelo, the famous Renaissance artist, who when carving his sculpture of an angel was actually famously quoted as saying, I saw the angel in the stone and I carved until I set it free. 
So Dr. Greg Steinberg uses this to say that sometimes there's something quite cold, lifeless, hard, um, but if you look hard enough and chip away at those, those hard things, you'll find something beautiful um, within that. Another concept of resilience that most psychologists and researchers will work off is the third one, the ability to bounce back from challenges or change. Um, but by far my favourite definition of resilience is one by Andrew Fuller, who's a bit of a youth resilience guru. Some of you may have heard of him. He's a clinical psychologist also. And he talks about resilience being the happy knack of being able to bungee jump through the pitfalls of life. Um, so it's almost like when our kids get knocked down, they have this uh, invisible elasticized rope around their leg, which kind of pulls them back up to where they were before rather than leaving them um, down in a bad spot. So what is it that gives us this kind of happy knack, if you like? Well, first of all, there's a whole bunch of internal factors. So um, genetic makeup is, a, is, is part of that. Now, emotionality is a trait which some psychologists have looked at, which can lead to depression and anxiety. And it's that kind of way of being quite sensitive to things that happen around you, um, that sense of um, overthinking things, of doubting yourself, of thinking the worst. And so emotionality is kind of the opposite of what you want to inherit if you want to be resilient. Personality also has a bit of a role to play and researchers have looked at things like type A and B personalities. So type A personalities are quite um, inflexible um, sometimes. They're like, I have a job to do and I want to get it done. Nothing's going to stop me. They're also quite stressy. So type B personalities tend to have um, done better in their um, inheritance um, lotto, if you like, um, because they are more relaxed and easygoing. They can kick back and take life as it comes, which tends to make them a bit more resilient in the long run. But unfortunately, like I said, the word lotto before, um, these things we can't do anything about. We either inherit them or we don't. So thankfully for us, if we got the bad end of the stick with the, you know, the internal traits, resilience is far more a learnt skill. So it really boils down to thinking and behavioural patterns which can be taught. So things like how can we keep things in perspective or change our perspective? Um, how can we learn to cope well when things don't go too good for us? How can we cope in a healthy way rather than an unhealthy way? How can we learn to solve problems? How can we have a strong sense of self-esteem? And how can we build a sense of meaning and purpose that um, is an overarching thing that we keep our eyes on when life doesn't go the way that we had planned? So the first thing in, in thinking about resilience, really, I think resilience for our children is parental resilience. So if we're meant to be looking after everyone else, how can we um, do that if we're not faring too well ourselves? And often as parents, I know I do this all the time, we put our kids first, thinking we're doing the right thing, which we are in a sense, but if it is to the point of us really not doing too good, then we need to take a look at that and change things relationship is one of the biggest um, keys to instilling resilience. Um, so if, if that relationship isn't going too well because we're struggling, then it becomes a bit of a problem. And our children really need opportunities to be able to learn resilience. 
So we've all heard about helicopter parenting, but what we need to do to develop resilience is more give our children an opportunity where there's a potential for fail, to, to fail, sorry, but then we step back and kind of watch from the sidelines and give them guidance when needed. So Andrew Fuller, who I mentioned before with the bungee jumping definition, he says that resilience is inherent inherent in each one of us. It just requires an opportunity to activate it. And um, in doing that, it allows us to realize our internal and external resources that we can draw upon flexibly and creatively when another challenge hits. So a lot of schools um, at the moment do things like challenge camps. So, you, you know, as part of your children's yearly camp, they might go and do things like abseiling or something that pushes them out, do a, a speech in front of people, something that pushes them out of their comfort zone. Um, so those are, are great ways of having an opportunity to learn, I can do this and, and what, am, what am I good at in terms of that? Present parenting is really important in terms of learning resilience. So what's kind of happened in our culture recently is that um, often we're, we're very busy. The cost of living is quite high. A lot of us, are, the mum and dad are working um, at the same time. So we, we're lacking that kind of role modelling, which our children really use to learn how to be resilient. So as we all know, they're like little sponges. They're watching everything we say and do. And we'd love them to just, you know, do what we say and not what we do, but it, it is monkey see, monkey do with the children. So they're, they're looking at things like, how do we regulate our emotions when we're upset? How do we change our negative thoughts into something much more healthy and, and not so much positive, but more realistic about a situation? Um, what kind of coping strategies do we use to pick ourselves up when we've had a bad day? So, um, yeah, they're very much soaking that all up almost by osmosis from us. And I think in terms of role modelling, it's really interesting to ask ourselves, what have we been role modelling in the last few months um, if we have been going through a challenging situation? So there's no, there's no guilt in, you know, thinking, oh, we didn't do too well as a role model at that time, but just to kind of reflect and um, see what we can do differently in the future. So in terms of resilience in this generation, I really think this is one of the least resilient generations ever. Um, out of all the kids that come in who are resilient, there's probably another 10 or, or 20 that are just really floundering. And in fact, they tend to be kind of the opposite of resilient, if, if anything. So, um, you know, I just want to move myself so I can see this. So basically the opposite of resilience, you know, they, they're quite rigid sometimes in their thinking. They're quite fragile. Um, you know, they're given easily to defeatism um, and they, they have that kind of weakness. Now, vulnerability is an interesting word because Brene Brown, you might have seen some of her TED talks on vulnerability, which can be a good thing and a strength, but it, this is kind of saying that our children can often be vulnerable to falling apart. That's the definition of vulnerability there. Okay, so um, I think that a lot of cultural changes have led to this lack of resilience that we're seeing in young people at this point in time. So the first one is absent parents. I mentioned before, um, culture of busyness and 
um, you know, us, the cost of living means that we're not at home. So it used to be that the child would come home if they've had a bad day and mum was probably there to, um, you know, talk them through what is it that happened? How can we solve this problem in the future? How can, what can we do to make you feel better this afternoon? And, and a lot of the children that I work with are now going home and there isn't that, um, key caregiver there so they're, they're turning to their friends or the internet for, for support which is the worst thing they could possibly do another cultural change our kids really have this overinflated sense of individual and me and entitlement um, they're not looking at it as us or um, how can we work together as a community and we were never intended to live um, individualistic we were intended to be in community and you only have to look at the rates of mental illness in more altruistic societies with strong social connections to know that that's that's true we also have unrealistic expectations of life at this point in time um, has anyone heard of Russ Harris and his book the happiness trap it's really great it kind of um, I can probably explain it quite clearly by talking about a conference I went to a while back and he called out um, a list of human emotions. So he said, you had to say whether it was bad or good. So he said, oh, happiness, and everyone's good. Um, excitement, good. Fear, bad. Anger, bad. And he went through the list and he said, you guys have actually just labelled two thirds of human emotion as bad when really it is just life. So the minute that we start seeing negative things that happen as a problem, as a difficulty, rather than just life, we um, can fall into a bit of a trap um, and lose a lot of resilience. Our kids are also navigating new challenges. So um, there's stuff that's going on that I never had to go through um, as a child going through primary school or high school, which our children are now having to work out. The biggest one is interacting with the cyber world. So in my private practice, I'm very much seeing an increase in cyber-related mental health concerns. Our children are very much basing their self-esteem and their sense of identity on affirmation or a lack of affirmation on their social media profiles. They're comparing their internal world, which is often quite shaky, to the external world, which is beautiful and glossy, of other um, people on the internet. They are also having things like their sexuality and gender shaped by very strong political and cultural messages. Um, and the cyber world opens up a whole bunch of other um, things to do with, for example, self-harm being broadcast. I don't know if any of you have heard, have heard of the self-harm or suicide challenges that are going around online at this point in time. There's, um, there's one, there's, there's um, Momo, the Slender Man, um, a Blue Whale Challenge, and basically um, there'll be an online kind of predator who targets children with a with a, a big um, you know, cyber presence. Um, the Blue Whale Challenge, for example, will challenge a child to do things like stay up all night, watch a horror movie, harm an animal, carve a picture of a blue whale into your arm. Um, and then eventually it kind of scales up to asphyxiation challenges and even um, suicide. So there's some really horrible things floating around on the web. Um, Cyberbullying has taken on a whole new flavour since the you know, introduction of, of being online so much. I don't know if anyone has heard of anonymous honesty sites. Things like Saraha, some of your children may have talked to you about. There's some names of other ones out there, but that's a popular one at the moment. And basically, um, 
you can ask for feedback on a photo or on an idea and then anyone can get on and tell you what they think and often it opens up um, a lot of cyberbullying potential. You can imagine in the hands of kids how that can go down sometimes. Um, it was created to be used more in the workplace for adults to give each other constructive criticism. Um, so yeah, it's not to demonise the web. I guess that's back to the, the Jekyll and Hyde thing. Those are all the really bad things that I'm seeing um, with cyber-related mental health issues. But basically we need to teach our kids to navigate their use of the web and be good stewards. They're gonna be working with it, um, using it in hopefully beautiful ways throughout their lifetime. So how can we really have a finger on the pulse as to what they're finding on the web and dialogue um, with them about that? So another new challenge, sexuality and gender. Around the time of the gay marriage debate, I can't remember how many years ago that was, but in school counselling, I was starting to see um, a lot of girls, it was a private girls, not boys school that I was at, coming to me saying that they were unsure whether they were lesbian or bisexual. And it was just so interesting that um, this was very much a new phenom phenomenon. I thought the stats can't have changed. Um, and what kids started to tell me and I started to understand was that they felt that there was um, a need to experiment, to know whether they were gay or straight or bisexual. Um, prior to that, it had been, if I'm a girl, I'm just going to be with a boy unless I, there's truly something there that I identify as being different. Um, so that was a massive shift. And what I was seeing was a lot of distress and confusion around sexuality and gender identity. Um, the school I was at, there was a year eight cohort. Um, year eight's always a tricky year, but a lot of the girls were actually dating each other, having um, first sexual experiences with each other. Um, I had a year eight mother in tears one time explaining to me that her, her daughter had come to her saying that she thought that she was a lesbian and she had um, been giving, having a number of sleepovers with a, a, a girlfriend from year eight and the mother would never have let this child um, have sleepovers with boys because she was trying to protect her from um, those early sexual experiences. Um, so yeah, a lot of things happening in that respect. There's also a, the, a culture of schools, which is adding sometimes to the confusion and distress that young um, people are experiencing around gender and sexuality. So, for example, I was working in a Catholic school, but the safe schools agenda was very heavily owned by the teachers and almost preached in the classrooms. And these were values that were very opposite to um, what the parents' values were, and the parents were unaware this was happening. So there was that breakdown on what was being taught at home, what was being taught at school, and it was that real distress and confusion around those, those messages regarding their emerging identity. So another big change in culture um, is a bombardment of expectations. So I work with a lot of young, young kids around age nine, so that's probably about year three, who are completely burnt out. So <laughs> they're doing homework every night. They uh, have got sport, music commitments, dance, whatever else is going on. And their brains are just fried. They don't know how to stop and just be because they're on the run all the time. And to even find time, you know, to have five minutes is hard when they look at their, their weekly schedule. Um, you know, we've all heard about NAPLAN and whether we think that's a good or a bad thing that can create a lot of stress um, in terms of expectations, 
there's a big culture, especially in private high achieving schools, to just get one more mark. And although the teachers will stand at the front and say, just do your best, the real implicit message behind that is you better get that one more mark because the school's depending on you to, to bring our rate, our scaling up. And I think that a lot of parents sometimes lose track of the, the thought that success in school doesn't necessarily equal success in life. So uh, some of the most successful people in our world actually never even finished high school. And also God made us all very unique and our children very uniquely. I've, I have so many parents who come in and they're, they're really pushing their kids um, to be good at, for example, maths. And their children actually are just not good at it. They're never going to be good at it, but they might be amazing at creative design or, or other things. And because those other things aren't as valued by the parents or the families, um, it creates a lot of anxiety for the child who is sometimes being compared to, say, another sibling who might be great at maths. Um, so, yeah, we've got to kind of sometimes take a good look at our kids and just go, are they really going to be good at what I'm pushing them to be good at? So how can we, you know, reduce those expectations or make them realistic for our child? And just one final um, cultural change that has meant that this generation is, is very unresilient <laughs> is that there's new, new norms around mental health. So a lot of the time, especially in school, I was seeing groups of girls who had it, their, their leader of the group, the most popular girl would have been someone who was in and out of hospital sometimes with self-harm, depression, um, had um, strong mental health issues. And that person was quite cool and popular. Now, when I was at school, some of the people, we called them the, the emo kids, and they were the kids who had real mental health difficulties. They might have been self-harming. They tended to dress in black and kind of skulk around the schoolyard and they were the they were not the popular kids they were kind of the marginalized kids but there's been a real changing of the guard and there's sometimes a lot of role modeling of some of this mentally unhealthy behavior because they are the kids who sometimes get attention so that's that's a very interesting shift in our culture so because all these things are happening, because of all these challenges, it's more important than ever that we're really journeying with our children, that we know what's going on for them at school, in their friendship groups, that we're talking about it, um, that we're able to have that open relationship with them. Now, um, yeah, youth mental health, um, I think that society really has lost its compass. I think the compass is God um, and we've, we've kind of put God into the corner and this is really um, causing a, a bad effect on, on young developing minds and anxiety, depression and self-harm are all very much on the rise. Headspace says um, between 16 and 24, 26.4% um, of those people will have a mental illness with half of all lifetime cases emerging before the age of 14. So um, statistics are very hard to get for younger children because of a whole bunch of reasons I won't go into. But um, yeah, basically there, uh, we had a rise in emergency department presentations for self-harm and, and suicide um, attempts. There was a 300% increase between the years two. 2013 and 2016, as well as an increase in suicides at school. So um, everything very much is, you know, going a little bit pear-shaped at this point in time. Now, that's not to say, that's not to cause you to worry too much. We're going to talk about how to fix that up. So what can we do to teach resilience, to instill um, this in our children? 
Now, the biggest resilience robber um, are sometimes negative thoughts. So basically, we often think that we have a situation happen and then we have a feeling. And what we don't realise is that there is a negative thought in between there, which is leading to that feeling and sometimes a behaviour as well. So thoughts which rob resilience, we call them, especially with young children, ants, automatic negative thoughts. Now, the cognitive model of emotion, um, I stated before, there's a situation, a thought and a feeling. Um, if we think of an example, so for example, if your spouse is home late from work um, and you think that they um, have been in a car crash, what are you going to think? You're going to be distressed, you're going to be worried, you're going to be highly anxious. Same situation, your spouse is late, spouse is late but you think, oh, he or she got caught up in a meeting again. So you might just feel relief or mild annoyance. Um, you know, dinner's on the, on the oven and it's going to go cold. So the only thing that has changed is that thought. And now the negative thoughts are very hard to identify. And what we have to do to capture them sometimes is ask ourselves questions like, what exactly am I thinking right now that's making me feeling this way? making me feel this way? Why am I worried? What do I think is really going to happen? So if we can get a handle on that, that's the first step to changing negative thinking. And often our thoughts feel, fall into different categories and we call these cognitive thinking errors. So for example, our, we might often um, have thoughts that um, fall into the category of catastrophizing. So it's, you know, making a mountain out of a molehill. We, we might also have them around um, the category of mind reading. So believing and presuming that we know what someone else is thinking about us. And often that isn't a very nice thing. So there's also two kind of overarching themes to these automatic negative thoughts. And they tend to overestimate the probability of something bad happening and also how bad it is going to be if it does happen. So, what can we do to change this? With, with, our, with children, often it, we can do things like talk about shark versus dolphin thoughts. So a shark thought would be the, the ant, the automatic negative thought that's causing us to feel bad. Um, the dolphin thought is something that is a lot more helpful, realistic, kind of positive. So for example, you know, I made a mistake. That would be more of a shark thought because a mistake is often a negative thing. But a dolphin thought would be, you know, mistakes help me improve. Shark thought, this is too hard. A dolphin thought, this may take some time and effort. Another shark thought, I can't read. I'm no good at it. And a dolphin thought would be, I'm going to train my brain to read. So if we can start to help our kids, like, catch those negative thoughts and turn them around into something more realistic, we're halfway there. And, um, yeah, so hopefully our external dialogue then becomes their internal self-talk. When they come up with a negative thing, they can quickly switch it to something positive. Instilling um, a perspective of gratitude in our kids is also um, an excellent way to change thinking. So trying to get you know, them to see the glass, glass half full and that be their kind of um, way that they operate in life. We can do that by things like at the end of each day, um, sitting around the table and what are three things that you're grateful for or what went well today, three things. If we don't sit around a table, they can keep a gratitude journal, a gratitude diary. And at the end of the day, just do the same thing. 
Now, detective thinking is something we're going to do in our group work in a moment. So I'm not going to go too much into that. But this is for challenging and changing thinking that is particularly sticky. So the more worried a child is, the more it's going to take um, to shift that negative thought to something more realistic and helpful. You kind of can't just say sometimes um, a different thought and have them buy into it and believe it. So detective thinking um, with a younger child, you might want to get them to say, um, choose their detective. So do you want to be Detective Pikachu or do you want to be Sherlock Holmes? And then they've got four steps to go through. So first of all, write down the event and the thought behind the feeling. Now, this is in some of your paperwork and I'll, I'll go on to the example on the next slide. And then use a worry scale to rate how worried you are when you think the thought. So if we think of a worry scale between, say, zero to 10, zero is not worried at all. 10 is extremely worried. How worried are you, um, when, you when you think this thing is going to happen? Okay, look for the evidence. So what are the facts about the thought? What's likely to happen? What's happened to me and others before? And then we list all the other things that might happen instead. And then using the evidence you found, you write down a more realistic thought to replace the worried thought and give a new worried rating. So it all makes a lot more sense when you see um, the physical sheet. So I don't know if any of you have this in front of you or have looked through it online. But um, this is George's example. So the event for what, for what is happening for George is he has to give a talk at school. The thought is, I'll do a bad job and kids will talk about me behind my back. And he's worried about it to an extent of eight on a worry scale. I'm not going to read out all the evidence, but, but basically he's kind of going through and almost putting that thought on trial on a stand and looking at, okay, what's happened before? What's likely to happen? What's happened to other people? And he's writing that all down. And then he, based on that, he comes up with more of a realistic thought and a different worry rating. So, you know, I'll probably do a good job. And even if I make some mistakes, the kids probably won't even notice. Um, so his worry rating will then go down to around a three. So we'll get a chance to do more of that. Now, the behaviour which robs resilience, moving on from the thoughts, um, the strongest behaviour which robs resilience is avoidance. So if our kids are always missing the party because they're nervous, missing school because they don't feel great that day, missing out on, um, you know, whatever else that causes them fear, we are going to actually... Um, not only reinforce the anxiety, but take away from that opportunity, which teaches them that actually it's okay. You know, I, I can, I do have what it takes. I can get through this and do okay at it. Poor physical health. Um, so, you know, not enough sleep, um, not eating the right um, type of food, not getting out enough for exercise. Um, the amount of time we spend on screens all robs us of having resilience as well, as does a lack of life balance. So being able to switch off and have some quiet times for our minds. So the biggest way to change particularly avoidant behaviour, is by graded exposure to challenges and fears using a stepladder approach. Now, I can send some of this through to Mike for you later if you need it. But basically, in private practice, I use this a tremendous amount. And it's looking at um, how can we set a goal of what we want to change with the kind of feared behaviour. So in this example, Lashy 
wants to, I'm just moving my thing, <laughs> to be able to stay at home with a sitter without worrying about mum being out. Now, if you were to um, make Lashie stay at home one night while mum was out and she had a very bad experience, that fear could almost become entrenched. So a much better way of stopping her from avoiding that situation is to break um, that fear up into small bite-sized chunks of steps that she feels comfortable achieving and work your way up. So for example, staying home with dad while mum goes out 15 minutes, um, it talks about rewards here as well. You may want to reward your child for each step that they achieve, but you want to start small with something three or below. Now, um, when I'm talking about three or below, again, I'm talking about that worry scale. So how anxious is that child about the situation? You want to then build up slowly and slowly until that child feels more comfortable with the higher steps and eventually mum can go out all night. Now, with each step, it's really important that the child stays, kind of gets to the point where they feel comfortable um, and not too anxious, maybe almost a little bit bored with that step. So, for example, um, you know, if you look at step number three, staying home with dad while mum goes out for four hours, if Lashy was to do that a few times, she might feel like, yep, yeah, I've got this covered um, and she feels okay. What we don't want to do is throw our kids into a very high level of anxiety situation um, where they, they, their greatest fears are realised and they kind of think, oh, I actually did have something really bad to worry about. The situation was terrible. So the way we do that is, I'm just going to, well, here we go. Um, if we look at... <clears throat> you know, anxiety, low to high, um, time, low to high from left to right. Um, if the first, well, use the example of the child learning to swim. Um, look at the middle line with the A and B written on it. Now, time A is when the child gets in the water and is kind of freaking out a little bit because it's new, they're quite anxious. Um, if they stay in the water long enough, they get through to time B, which is when anxiety starts to reduce, when they start to feel like, oh, the water's kind of nice, mum's in here with me, this is, this is kind of fun, it's better than I thought. Now, if we take them out of the water at time B or later, they are going to be much more likely the second time a situa that situation comes up, which is going swimming, to be less anxious to start with and the anxiety is going to reduce very, very quickly. Um, if instead, the, you know, we take them out at time A when they're anxious and freaking out, um, they are going to be more anxious the next time they get into the water and it's going to take longer and longer for them to start to feel better about being in there. So yeah, let the child feel comfortable with each step before moving on. Um, yeah, so, so other, other ideas, improving the physical health with getting good sleep, eating, all the rest of the things I mentioned before, um, having a balance in the life. So do you, do you have slow Sundays where no one gets on their devices? Um, you know, do you all put your phones and things in a box from seven o'clock at night to spend time with the family? Um, and planning pleasant events is something we sometimes do with um, people with low mood. So we look at, um, you know, what are three things that I can intentionally do this week to make that I, that I really enjoy that make me feel good. So those things kind of keep our mood high and feeling, um, yeah, feeling good in life. So that's good for resilience as well. Now, this is the last thing I know I've got to wind up pretty much now, Mike. <laughs> um, so positive psychology and resilience. So I mentioned very briefly positive psychology before. If anyone's heard of Martin Seligman, he has been big in talking about what are the five pillars of well-being, um, And these have a lot to say about how resilient um, our children will be as well.
So the first pillar, positive emotion. How can we feel good about ourselves and about our lives? Second pillar, engagement. So this goes with the concept of flow, being in the moment, um, you know, slowing down. Third pillar, relationships. So that sense of belonging is really key and authentic, deep connections. Um, a sense of meaning and purpose. So, um, yeah, belonging to and serving something bigger than us and a sense of accomplishment. So positive education is just when these five pillars are translated into the curriculum at school. So doing things like, you know, gratitude journaling, um, finding your, you know, signature strengths that give you a sense of meaning and purpose in life. So some of you might have your children in schools that are quite big on positive education. And just finally, um, some ideas for um, what positive psychology can help us with in terms of our children's resilience. So positive emotion, a lot of that comes down to the cognitive model of emotion that I talked about before, where if we can change our thoughts, our feelings will follow. So how can we do things as well that our kids love and make them feel good about themselves. Okay, in terms of engagement or flow, how can we teach our kids to slow down a little bit? Um, you know, they might want to um, do some, some finger breathing, for example, where they breathe in as they kind of trace their finger up and breathe out as they trace their finger down. So just to slow down, um, to stop doing a million things all at once. Sometimes with relationships, our kids aren't, aren't feeling connected. So how can we move them into situations through, um, you know, different sporting clubs or groups without burning them out, where they can connect with kids that they, they feel they belong with and adults that they feel they belong with too. Um, in terms of meaning, faith is a massive one here. Our kids really do crave boundaries and um, faith and godly living does tend to... Um, allow beautifully for that for our children. Also, how can we, you know, give them opportunities with creative pursuits, volunteering pursuits to find that meaning and purpose in life? Kindness gives a, the greatest sense of meaning at, of all. So how can we, you know, do things like, you know, buy a coffee for the person behind us or take over a meal for a sick neighbour? Um, so that really gives us a sense, that kind of zingy feeling of meaning and purpose in our life. And how can we celebrate our kids' accomplishments and also help them to find their unique strengths? So there's actually a great um, questionnaire online. It's called the Values in Action, VIA Strengths Questionnaire. And our kids can do that. I've done that with a lot of children, particularly of high school age. And they find their five key signature strengths. And it talks about how you can use those in action. And also how can we teach our kids to set SMART goals so they can have that sense of accomplishment and success. So we've all heard about those, I'm sure, the specific, measurable, achievable, or I'm probably getting it wrong, but top, you know, realistic and time-framed goals um, that they can, um, yes, work towards in life. So I've kind of rushed through that, that last bit. So you might have some questions about that in the Q&A time. Um, just resources. Um, Mark, I don't know if you wanted to say anything else about that, but um, yeah, three great books, The Helping Your Anxious Child, that is, talks a lot about the dolphin and shark thinking. It talks a lot about the stepladders and the detective thinking. Um, Flourish by Martin Seligman talks about the positive psychology and PERMA, the five pillars of well-being. And From Surviving to Thriving is Andrew Fuller's book, which talks a lot about resilience um, and some great websites as well. And Reach Out is a great organisation and they've got some excellent parent resources.